Before we get started, we just want to thank you all so much for your support and your feedback. It has really been incredible. And we got a lot of ideas for really great episodes coming forward that we can't wait to share with you guys. Also, want to let you guys know that we have decided to make this a monthly podcast with new episodes coming out the 14th of every month. Why not the 15th, Peter? Uh, the 14th is my favorite number. Yeah, I suggested the 15th. <laughs> and without further ado, on to the show. Welcome to the next episode of Bowel Sounds. I'm Jennifer Lee, a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I'm Jason Silverman from Stollery Children's Hospital. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Karen Murray. You may know her as the president of NASPEGAN currently. Chairman of pediatrics at the Cleveland Clinic. Some of us know her as the undefeated champion of colon versus semicolon soccer games. Sorry. That's true. No, that's true. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about her career and a little bit about hepatitis C. Do you know anything about hep C? I'm hoping to learn more. And she's somebody who, uh, as a physician, as an administrator, as a leader, has really taught everyone the meaning of the word persist. Love that. Should we persist on to that episode? No, I think we should quit while we're ahead. Dr. Murray, a lot of our listeners will know you as the current president of NASPICAN. We don't often get opportunities to talk to, you know, a president. So maybe you can... Madam president. (laughs) Madam president. One of the things that I I wanted to ask about, because I've been hearing sort of rumors of of this undefeated uh, uh, record of the colons versus semicolons in soccer. Can you you maybe comment a little bit of that to start? Sure. Sure. So our youngest viewers may not know that there was this um, fun competition between the colons and the semicolons over years. So this was actually the, I believe, the brainchild of Carlo De Lorenzo, who you have heard on a prior podcast. And um, as a avid soccer player, he had arranged a fun pickup soccer game at our annual meeting. And this went on for many years. The colons were the faculty, and the semicolons were the fellows. And year after year, we would play, and it was really great fun. I believe I played in every game that existed. Um, I might add, I was one of very few women playing on the on the colons team. There were a number of spectators, and they were avid spectators as well. And we had great fun. Now there was one problem with it. Well, there actually, were a few problems with this. The reason it finally ended it was becoming increasingly more difficult to find a soccer field in the various cities where we had our annual meeting. Um, the other problem that uh, was definitely existing is there were there was a group of faculty who were pretty much the every year colons. And uh, strangely, these faculty would get older every year. Yet the fellows did not get older. (laughs) And this increasingly became problematic. So we would bring bottles and bottles of Advil and splints of various sorts and lots of bags of ice. And we would triumph nonetheless (laughs) and limp off the field. (laughs) That rumor of the undefeated record? It may be true. I don't don't know. I know we won quite a few of them. 
Okay. Yeah. It was actually fun. I mean, the whole purpose is to uh, have fun, get to know each other um, in a in a way that was just a fun competition and shows that we're all the same human being. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, it was great to hear some about Naspigan before. Can we hear a little bit about your career and how you got where you are? Um, you know, I'm young into my career now, and if I would love to hear advice about how did you become the president of Naspigan and a chairman at a major institution? So what advice do you have for everyone and then also anything specific for women? So it's such an interesting question, and we can take this in many different ways. I would say that the overwhelming uh, message as far as um, maybe not how I got to the positions I am, which, which quite frankly was a lot of luck and support from others, but was willingness to try new things put oneself forward as, as the term is now coined, lean in, uh, and not be afraid to follow a meandering path because opportunities come up sometimes at unpredictable times. And if we do not allow ourselves the flexibility of sometimes following those, following those ebbs and flows, uh, we may miss opportunities. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about one or two of those opportunities that you decided ah, uh, heck, let's just go for it, and, and how that worked out for you. And what kind of lucky charms did you carry around, like <laughs> rabbit's foot or four-leaf clover? No lucky charms, just luck. But um, no, it's really around mentorship and, and um, support people around you. You know, the the idea of mentors really needs to be underscored, and we don't have one mentor, we have many, and people who can support, and that is uh, individuals in our personal lives as well as our professional lives. I think uh, to your re- your question, Jason, about uh, reach- recent paths, I can probably give a number of examples. The most recent one is what led to the job that I currently have, which was not a job that I sought. Um, I did not apply to outside institutions for a chair position. Um, I happened to bump into a colleague at the institution where I was, at the adult institution where I was. Um, whose friend happened to be chairing the search committee uh, for the position that I ultimately um, am, am um, lucky enough to have. And his knowing me and knowing the chair of the search committee, uh, he connected us. He gave me, he gave my name to the head of the search committee who reached out. That started a dialogue. And that was, that was completely luck. Wow. That seems pretty lucky. You so, just must wander around the institution hoping to bump into important people. <laughs> Should we be doing that at NASA again? <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so I think the other thing is, I think it's important for people to decide what are their ultimate goals? What do they want to do? That is not always an, an answer that is easy uh, for folks. But if... One can understand and do some self-reflection about what kind of career they want. Maybe more importantly, what do they find most gratifying, most fun, most rewarding? And then what kind of job would allow them to have those qualities in, in their job? 
um, and then set themselves up to gain the experience or develop the contacts that are needed for those. So I'll give you an example from back when. I am really driven by mentoring others. I love to to, um, be able to have some role in someone else's successes. And in considering what roles would really facilitate that, uh, being a division chief, I thought might be a nice position to have, uh, where I could help people build programs. I could foster others' careers. And, um, and I find that very rewarding. So when I was faculty building my own research career and, and clinical career, I also asked my own chairman, medical director, et cetera, what was their opinion about what I needed to do at that time to position myself for five or 10 years in the future. In asking that advice, two things happened. I got their advice and um, I also sent a message. And the message was, I aspire to being a division chief in that case. Um, And so as opportunities came up, that were brought to their attention, and they thought that it was something that I might be interested in, they were aware of my interests and they were able to bring those to me. And so through that, uh, I was able to be um, officer and president of our medical staff on our practice plan, ultimately division chief in the institution where I was, so on. So I think it's very important for people to self-reflect about what they want to do and what jobs might allow them to do that best. And then also seek advice from others about how to do it and tell people that that's an aspiration. I think in academics and just in life in general, a lot of times we hear no. You put a grant in there, you're not funded the first time. You try to take a step out of your comfort zone and it may not lead to success every time. What advice do you have for people who are hearing no? Uh, persist. If that is your goal, then then continue to reapply for grants or to try for whatever the position is. So if you ask any person, I suspect, in leadership or who is grant funded or has a high education position, undoubtedly throughout their careers, uh, they did not get the position or did not get the grant or um, were floundered in some way before success was found. And I think we really need to keep our sights on what our goals are and just persist continuously towards those goals. And do you think it's doable? I mean, the listeners may remember I have toddlers at home from the last episode. Is it possible to work full time and be at home? Is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. I have two children and and a spouse and uh, have always been full time. And I think it is important to understand that uh, there is, you know, there's talk of work-life balance. I would say it's actually work-life integration, that at different points in your life and your career, what that integration or balance looks like changes over time. So when you have very young children at home, uh, you may have to leave work early to pick them up at daycare, for instance. And then you come home and of course they're tired and hungry and so those needs need to be met. You put them to bed. And if, if you're like me, I also would fall asleep with them, um, because I was so tired or you could get some work done at that point. Um, as the children age and become more independent, 
the needs and demands on the parents change. And so too can your attention to other things. But I, I do worry when I hear young people say that, oh, I can't work full time or I can't be X, Y, or Z because I want to have a family. And my own feeling would be you can do both. If you, uh, if you want children, you want a full time job, um, uh, you want to get married or have a spouse. There is no reason one can't do that. It's just about prioritizing and being intentional about how your schedule is set up and and how you structure your days and weeks. So let's change gears a little bit and start talking about hepatitis C. In pediatrics, who should be screened for hepatitis C? Certainly any child who is born to a mother known to have hepatitis C should be screened. Anyone who takes part or is suspected of taking part in high-risk activities, intranasal and uh, intravascular injection of drugs, uh, certainly someone who is suspected to have such a history. There is some concern that having tattoos and piercings might infer increased risk, um, but that risk is probably very low. Uh, and then there is a uh, fortunately very small incarcerated pediatric population where the risk is slightly higher than the general population, uh, but those are not so many folks. The biggest population by far are children born to hepatitis C positive mothers. And how do you recommend we do that screening? The American Academy of Pediatrics has clear guidelines about how to screen. The current recommendation is screening with an anti-hepatitis C antibody at 18 months of age. At that age, the passive immunity from mothers should have waned, and so that you would pick up any antibody positivity that is coming from the child. That said... Most mothers find it very emotionally difficult to wait a whole year and a half before doing that screening. I can see that. Yeah. And so another option is to to do hepatitis C RNA PCR testing at any time after two months of age. How do you confirm the diagnosis? And once you do, can you talk us through how you would have that discussion with the family? I'll first make a comment about just how emotionally difficult it is. So about 60% of children maybe as high as 80% of children who have hepatitis C have acquired the infection congenitally. Uh, mothers in particular, quite frankly, carry a lot of guilt. Mothers who are infected have lower quality of life when their children are infected, and it really impacts the functioning of the family. So they are quite worried about it. Um, you verify the infection through a PCR. So if an antibody test was done regardless of the age, and it is positive, one really must do a hepatitis C PCR for RNA. Um, the antibody really is, is sort of like a fingerprint of prior presence, but it does not necessarily mean that the virus is still present. So RNA is how you verify that. I think it's fair to say most children who are referred or come with their parents to a hepatology clinic are coming with the concern of hepatitis C. So they either come with a positive PCR test or come with a positive antibody. And so they are looking for further clarification around that. Certainly, if I were a primary care provider and were screening out of some concern and it came back and the antibody, let's say, came back positive, I would share very openly with the family that I am concerned that the child might have an infection, but that needs to be verified. And if verified, and then you want to talk about the the RNA, 
um, that there are treatments available for even young children, not infants, but young children that are highly successful and well tolerated. So the the landscape for treatment of hepatitis C has really changed in the last two years dramatically. So that's a great segue because uh, one of the next questions that we wanted to ask about is that the fact that the management in Hep C has gone through such a dramatic change, um, you know, over the last decade. And, and particularly within the last few years in pediatrics. Can you walk us through what's changed? Yeah, sure. So the first treatments that were approved for children for hepatitis C treatment were in the late 90s. Um, and it was specifically a combination of interferon plus ribavirin. So interferon was given subcutaneously three times a week, and ribavirin is given orally. That continued to be the only therapy, and, and the effectiveness of that therapy, of a year of therapy, of three times a week, a week subcutaneous injection with a lot of inherent side effects to the drug of interferon, resulted in a sustained virologic response somewhere in the 20 to, to 40% range. And sustained virologic response is defined as 12 weeks after the termination of therapy, is the individual still RNA-PCR negative? And then generally it's verified at six months for an SVR at six months. Then in 2008 and 2011, a new pegylated interferon was approved. This allowed the the subcutaneous injection once weekly with a still in combination with ribavirin, basically the same side effect profile, but but easier injection strategy, and again for a year of therapy, uh, and that improved the sustained virologic response to approximately fifty to eighty percent. And I give these ranges because there are different genotypes of hepatitis C, and they are differentially responsive. Then just two years ago, two thousand seventeen, up to the present. We have had a increasing number of oral regimen therapies approved. And so we now have three approved therapies. Two of them are approved down to age three. One of them is approved down to age 12. And trials are going on with that same last regimen down to age three. Hopefully it will be approved in, in uh, a year future. And these are oral medications that have improved the sustained virologic response to the high 90s, 97 to 100% with a side effect profile that is effectively similar to placebo with only 12 weeks, and in some cases, eight weeks of oral therapy. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, that's such a big change. Often in pediatrics, we use medications that are not approved down to a certain age. You helped spearhead efforts to bring these effective adult medications into children. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what you did and how other pediatric gastroenterologists can advocate for their patients? Yeah, absolutely. So it was in that case, it was really about being part of these trials that led to FDA approval. So, you know, I think that it is very important for us as pediatric gastroenterologists to partner with pharmaceutical companies that generate these medications. And we're part of the trials that safely study these drugs in pediatric populations, understanding the physiology, the pharmacokinetics of these drugs in these young children so that they can be safely brought to market. And if we don't participate in them, then we are left with drugs only approved for adults or other conditions. And we we then are, are faced with using them outside of labeling, which 
Um, although in pediatrics is commonly done, it does limit our understanding of how those drugs are going to be metabolized in certain age groups and in combination with other drugs. Yeah. I certainly want to use them. I mean, if it's that effective and no side effect profile, I'm not a hepatologist, but... Yeah, well, and I and I think honestly, your point is well taken because these medications are so well tolerated, and the and the courses of therapy are so short that um, folks who are caring for children with hepatitis C can do so without the need of a hepatologist if they at least understand how to monitor the child through therapy uh, safely. Can you talk a little bit about how that decision about when to go forward with treatment has changed now in this new era? In the interferon era, um, the treatments did have toxicities. And so you would take children who were, uh, as relates to their infection with hepatitis C, they were completely asymptomatic for the most part. And now you were going to use a regimen that had some chance of clearance of the virus, but in the meantime was likely to make them sick. About 80% had flu-like symptoms at the beginning, and it had serious um, hematologic uh, side effects. So we had to consider that very carefully. Um, and families, quite frankly, were sometimes resistant. So in that era, we were commonly doing liver biopsies to assess what the impact of the hepatitis C was and carefully counseling the family as to the side effects to assure that they thought that they could embark on this and support the child through it. Uh, now with these oral direct-acting antivirals, the need for a liver biopsy is, is really removed. Um, and it's our feeling that if we have proof of PCR positivity of hepatitis C, um, and we understand the genotype and therefore choose the right drugs for treatment, we don't need a liver biopsy because the effectiveness is high, the impact or the negative consequences are low, and in just a few months, we will have certainty about whether they are a sustained responder. Recently, there's been some news out about the cost of these medications. Can you address that a little bit? Is it easy to get these medications approved for your patients, and what do you do to have to get them approved. The good news is that the cost of these medications are going down as time is going on. Uh, generics are being developed, although there are none with a formulation that is appropriate for a young child. They're all in tablets. Um, and um, there are other generics coming along that lowers the case. And, the, and the, even the parent drugs, trade drugs, um, are coming down in cost. That said, the latest literature that I am aware of, of costs puts the cost at approximately $700 to $1,000 a day for most of these medications. And if you consider that it's a 12-week therapy, we're looking at costs depending on the regimen of somewhere between $26,000 and $89,000 for the, for the course. So it's not trivial. Insurance companies are variably willing to approve Certainly before age group approval, there was definitely reluctance. Now that we have a pediatric indication, there is increased willingness, but still there there is some resistance. And it is, depending on the insurance company, somewhat state dependent. There, there have been some studies that have looked at the cost effectiveness as relates to years gained, if you will, in quality of life for the individuals infected. And it is cost effective, even despite that high cost um, for for all degrees of hepatic involvement. Is there anything else that you think 
that people should know about hepatitis C? The one thing that I would say is having a high index of suspicion because these children and most adults are completely asymptomatic. So unless we think about it and therefore screen, we will not identify everyone infected. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today and giving us all of this advice and teaching us about hepatitis C. Do you have any last comments that you want to make, um, advice for the fellows or the young faculty or anybody in NASPGAN? Yeah, I would say uh, embrace the fact that we all are members of this fabulous society. We have individuals who are very influential in in pediatric medicine uh, across multiple institutions, and this is an opportunity to get to know these individuals. I would also say for young folks, but even for not so young folks, um, talk to your fellow NASPGAN members, get insights from them. Um, find out how they launch their careers or uh, advance whatever initiatives they have and, and see if you can get advice that is useful for your own achieving your own goals. And for women um, in particular, but men as well, uh, I would say if you have an aspiration, go after it, uh, lean in, volunteer, step up. Um, if an opportunity comes your way, uh, consider it. Um, there are many reasons why not taking an opportunity, maybe the path of least resistance, but uh, that may also not avail you of some really exciting new adventures. That is great advice. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. What a big... <laughs> and drop the mic, except these are expensive. Don't drop them. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening to Bow Sounds yet again. Uh, if you like this episode or you want to give us feedback or ask questions, please drop us a line. We're at bowsounds at naspagan.org. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at bowsounds on Twitter and Instagram and at Pediatric GI Podcast on Facebook. And while you're at it, don't forget to follow Naspagan on those platforms as well. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations in this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change over time with advances in the field. Until next time. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.